Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Harvard here with you broadcasting live from Shelter in Place, my home office in Portland. And today would have been the 27th birthday of Breonna Taylor, the emergency medical technician who uh, was working on becoming a nurse who was uh, murdered in her bed asleep by police in Louisville. The protests against the murder by police of George Floyd continue all across the United States. You know, new developments in the Ahmed Arbery case. I mean, it's just it's just going on and on and on. One of the people who works with me on my books with BK Publishing, Linda Jupiter, sent this to me. You know, we've all heard this and I've read it before, but it was just perfect for today. So I printed it out. Now, this is from Frederick Douglass essentially our quote for the day. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation, Bill Barr. Uh, You know, I'm not going to editorialize. I'll just read it straight up because it's, after all, it's Frederick Douglass. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are people who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. To recap what we're seeing all across the United States, is a pretty good summary of this uh, over at today's New York Times. I'll just share some pieces from Sean Hubler and Julie Bozeman's piece on this. In California, an officer sitting in a police car in Viejo shot and killed a 22-year-old man who was on his knees with his hands up. He had a hammer in his uh, sweatshirt pocket. They thought it was a gun. At least that was their excuse. Uh, Yeah, I think you have to give them the benefit of the doubt on that, but still shooting. In Texas, a 20-year-old protester shot in the head by police officers in Austin with what's described as non-lethal beanbag ammunition has been left with uh, brain damage and a fractured skull. Cell phone videos show New York City police officers beating unarmed protesters and sideswiping demonstrators with open squad car doors. I am calling on Governor Cuomo to walk back his comments yesterday, uh, basically in defense of these police. And for that matter, Mayor Bill de Blasio as well. And both of you guys, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, you know, if you're afraid to take on the so-called police union. In most cases, these aren't actually even unions. In many, many cases, in fact, in probably in most cases, they're, they're not unions. They're protection rackets run to protect bad cops. If you're afraid to take on the unions, the police union, resign. I don't care how liberal or democratic you are, resign if you're afraid to take on your own cops. You're supposed to be in charge of them. In Atlanta, a half dozen officers have been criminally charged after a violent attack on two college students sitting in a car during protests. On live television, police officers in Louisville, Kentucky, 
fired pepper spray balls at journalists. We've got basically what we have are police riots all over the United States. To the best of my knowledge, there was virtually no looting or anything like that by protesters yesterday, but we had considerable rioting all across the United States by police. We are looking at police riots in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Miami Herald reporters filmed officers who were shooting a nonviolent protester in the head, fracturing her eye socket and leaving her screaming and bloody. In Kansas City, Missouri, the police walked onto the sidewalk to use pepper spray on protesters. In Buffalo, police officers in riot gear shoved a 75-year-old man to the ground and walked away as he lay unconscious on the sidewalk with blood coming out of his ear. Two of the 15 officers, presumably the first one who shoved him and the second one who stopped a third officer from from bending over and maybe helping the guy, uh, those two have been suspended. But 15 different officers walked by this guy as he lay bleeding unconscious on the pavement until finally a National Guard person said, hey, wait a minute. In North Carolina, a lawyer, or rather a North Carolina lawyer, compiled a gigantic thread. I retweeted this yesterday. A gigantic thread of clips of police rioting against civilians. 281 separate clips from different cities all across the United States. We are in full-blown police riot mode. You've got Donald Trump, the president, who said to a police officer's association, when you take somebody into custody, rough them up. You've got Bill Barr, the attorney general, who spoke to a police association and said that if communities, which I would suggest was code for black communities, aren't going to respect police officers, maybe they shouldn't have policing. Not a verbatim quote, but the essence of what he said. Trump has tweeted that the assertions by the media that tear gas and rubber bullets were used to clear the uh, area in front of St. John's Church right next door to the White House were lies and fake news. So the headline of the day award goes to the Washington Post. This is their headline. God bless them. White House says police didn't use tear gas and rubber bullets in incident that cleared protesters with chemical irritants and projectile munitions. Meanwhile, Bill Barr came out of his cave yesterday and said essentially, well, he said literally, there was no correlation between our tactical plan of moving the perimeter out by one block and the president's going over to the church. So California Senator Kamala Harris says, I invite Bill Barr to say this in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee which she serves on, by the way, under oath. Right, well, that ain't going to happen. And meanwhile, an advocacy group bought thousands, tens of thousands of face masks to send to uh, protesters in New York City, Minneapolis, St. Louis, and Washington, D.C. from a company that makes custom masks with slogans on them. This slogan says, stop killing black people. The company made them. The company packaged them and delivered them to the post office. The company attached to those packages a postal receipt so you could track the package. They never arrived. The post office officially says they were intercepted by law enforcement. Right. The Justice Department, led by Attorney General Bill Barr, has taken an aggressive posture against demonstrations and on Thursday expressed concerns about extremist agitators. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's a call for change today. And frankly, my call would be to disband these so-called police unions all across the country and some of the police departments. Van in Los Angeles. Hey, Van, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? How you doing, Tom? Glad to be listening to your show. I'm just glad to see so many people, all ethnic races, coming together. And finally, we're coming to defeat this man and to bring peace back into our society. But the one thing I want to ask is this man is carrying on like Hamlet Himmler. Which man are you talking about? 
Donald Trump and all the rest of them, uh, all the people who have been okay. in the Republican Party. But one of the things I wanted to say to you is that for those guys to come and move a dead body, once the body is dead, isn't it lawful that the forensics take over at that point and nobody can move the body? There were two men who were dressed in brown coats, like uh, they were dressed in brown shirts. And, uh, You're talking about George Floyd's body. body here? Yes, that's correct. Okay. George Floyd's body. They came and moved his body. And that was illegal. I think that at that point, when, when the man dies, when George Floyd dies, it is supposed to be covered until forensics come out and do an investigation. At that point, it no longer belongs to the police department. Am I right or wrong? I don't know, Van. I'm guessing that those policies and or laws probably vary from state to state, or at least vary somewhat. But my understanding was that an ambulance was called, EMTs showed up, and it was the EMTs who discovered that he was dead. And they loaded him in the ambulance and that he was not pronounced dead until he got to the hospital where a doctor could officially pronounce him dead. I don't think that was an ambulance at all, Tom. And not only that, we never saw an EMT check his body temperature, check his pulse or anything like that. I think there was something fishy about that whole thing. And the two guys who moved the body should be under investigation, too. And they probably should be arrested as well. Okay, Van. I haven't. Frankly, I haven't seen the video of, you know, his body being collected and moved. So I can't. I can't respond to you. I'm sorry. We're talking about policing in the United States. We're talking about race relations in the United States. We're talking about the racism, the institutional racism from our schools to our police departments right across the board. This is the Tom Hartman program. For our book club today, we're reading from David Blight's book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. This is from the introduction. In his speech at the dedication of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., September 24, 2016, President Barack Obama delivered what he termed a, quote, clear-eyed view of a tragic and triumphant history of black Americans in the United States. He spoke of a history that is central to the larger American story, one that is both contradictory and extraordinary. He likened the African-American experience to the infinite depths of Shakespeare and scripture. The, quote, embrace of truth as best we can know it, said the president, is, quote, where real patriotism lies. Naming some of the major pivots of the country's past, Obama wrapped up his central theme in a remarkable sentence about the Civil War era. Quote, we've buttoned up our Union blues to join the fight for our freedom. We've railed against injustice for decade upon decade, a lifetime of struggle and progress and enlightenment that we see etched in Frederick Douglass's mighty leonine gaze, end quote. How Americans react to Douglass's gaze, indeed how we gaze back at his visage, and more important, how we read him, appropriate him, or engage his legacies, informs how we use our past to determine who we are. Douglass's life and writing emerged from nearly the full scope of the 19th century, representative of the best and the worst in the American spirit. Douglas constantly probed the ironies of America's contradictions over slavery and race. Few Americans use Shakespeare and the Bible to comprehend his story and that of his people as much as Douglas. And there may be no better example of an American radical patriot than the slave who became a lyrical prophet of freedom, natural rights, and human equality. Obama channeled Douglas in his dedication speech, knowingly or not, so do many people today. Born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, a slave in Talbot County, Maryland, in February 1818. The future Frederick Douglass was the son of Harriet Bailey, one of five daughters of Betsy Bailey, and with some likelihood his mother's white owner. He saw his mother for the last time in 1825, though he hardly knew her. She died the following year. Douglass lived 20 years as a slave and nearly nine years as a fugitive slave subject to recapture. From the 1840s to his death in 1895, he attained international fame as an abolitionist, editor, orator of almost unparalleled signature, and the author of three autobiographies that are classics of the genre. As a public man, he began his abolitionist career two decades before America would divide and fight a civil war over slavery that he openly welcomed. Douglas was born in a backwater of the slave society of the South, just as steamboats appeared in bays and on American rivers, and before the telegraph, the railroad, and the rotary press changed human mobility and consciousness. He died after the emergence of electric lights, the telephone, and the invention of the phonograph. The renewed orator and traveler loved and used most of these elements of modernity and technology. 
Douglas was the most photographed American of the 19th century, explained in this book and especially by the intrepid research of three other scholars I write upon. Although it can never really be measured, he may also have been, along with Mark Twain, the most widely traveled American public figure of his century. By the 1890s, in sheer miles and countless number of speeches, he had few rivals as a lecturer in the golden age of oratory. It is likely that more Americans heard Frederick Douglass speak than any other public figure of his time. Indeed, to see or hear Douglass became a kind of wonder of the American world. He struggled as well with the pleasures and perils of fame as much as anyone else in his century, with the possible exceptions of General Ulysses S. Grant or P.T. Barnum. Douglass's dilemma with fame was a matter of decades, not merely of moments, and fraught with racism. The orator and writer lived to see and interpret black emancipation, to work actively for women's rights long before they were achieved, to realize the civil rights triumphs and tragedies of Reconstruction, and to witness and contribute to America's economic and international expansion in the Gilded Age. He lived to the age of lynching and Jim Crow laws, when America collapsed into retreat from the real victories and revolutions and race relations that he had helped to win. He played a pivotal role in America's second founding out of the apocalypse of the Civil War, and he very much wished to see himself as a founder and defender of the Second American Republic. In one lifetime of anti-slavery, literary, and political activism, Douglas was many things, and the set of apparent paradoxes makes his story so attractive to, to biographers, as well as to so many constituencies today. He was a radical thinker and a proponent of classic 19th century political liberalism. At different times, he hated and loved his country. He was a ferocious critic of the United States and all its hypocrisies, but also, after emancipation, became a government bureaucrat, a diplomat, and a voice for territorial expansion. He strongly believed in self-reliance and demanded an activist interventionist government at all levels to free slaves, defeat the Confederacy, and to protect black citizens against terror and discrimination. Douglas was a serious constitutional thinker, and few Americans have ever analyzed race with more poignancy and nuance than this mostly self-taught genius with words. He was a radical editor, writer, and activist. The book Frederick Douglass by David Blight. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Hey, on the line with us is our buddy Dean Obadala, the host of the Dean Obadala Show right here on Sirius XM, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Channel 127. He's also a columnist with the Daily Beast, his website, deanofradio.com. And of course, you can tweet him at Dean Obadala. Dean, welcome back to the program. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on Trump holding up a Bible in front of the church as a, as a Muslim American and as a person who I know watches very, very carefully this right. intersection, this exploitation of religion by the hard right in this country. First, Tom, thanks for having me on. It's always great to chat with you. It's interesting to me that Donald Trump gassed his own people so he could have a photo op in front of a church. And I've been in the Middle East a great deal of time. I have family there. I've seen leaders in the Middle East gas their own people. We've used it as an excuse to go to war with those people. But when Donald Trump does it, and there's no doubt, the smoke canisters, pepper balls, and now they just found a tear canister, but it doesn't really matter. The pepper balls and smoke canisters are the same impact, the same. They're toxic, inability to breathe, tearing eyes. So he literally gasses his own people to hold the Bible up. And look, Trump has no religious beliefs whatsoever. I'm from New York and New Jersey. We've seen him. But the people around him, from his vice president to you know, Reverend Jeffers and Franklin Graham and others, they want Christian Sharia law. They want to turn the Bible into our law. And Islamic Sharia would be turning the Quran into the basis of law. So Sharia just in Arabic just means path, like path to God. So I think I'm using it accurately when I call it Christian Sharia law. So Trump, meaningless, he's their vessel to impose the Bible as our basis for law. They want to do that, obviously, on on controlling women, on a and if they could roll back marriage equality, they would, and banning birth control, they would do that. So to me, the biggest stunning part was the gassing his own people to have a photo op. In front of a church, you know, politicians use religion all the time. And again, that is something you see in the Middle East a great deal of the time, where mm-hmm. they will use Islam uh, a great deal of the time to get people around them, to surround them, and ultimately keep them in power when they shouldn't be in power anymore. And that's the big picture that we're seeing this. You know, I I shared today again Michael Cohen's testimony, that line where he said, I've worked for Donald Trump, and I don't believe there will be a peaceful transition of power that he loses in 2020. I think that's increasingly more beyond, beyond hyperbolic today when the man just invoked the military and gassed his own people. That's where we're heading. Yeah. All along, Trump has been showing us his hand in Mm -hmm. small ways and large, and sometimes even trumpeting it, no pun intended. You know, we just thought, oh, you know, he's just being a blowhard. No, he's not being (laughs) a blowhard. There's something real. Dean, to what extent do you think that this might work? I mean, the, the conventional wisdom seems to be that this has backfired. But my sense of it is that the people that Trump was shouting out to, the authoritarian mm-hmm. Christians, the ones, the, the spare the rod, spoil the child Christians, the, the group that are very happy that yesterday or the day before, the Trump administration asked the Supreme Court to allow businesses to discriminate against people based on their sexual orientation, basically discriminate against LGBTQ people. I think it's actually probably working with them. I think Franklin Graham and, and, sure. and Jerry Falwell Jr. were smiling. What do you think? Certainly, they're very happy. This Donald Trump, because he has no core, is malleable. They can get him to do whatever they want by selling him. Ultimately, it's going to help you because everything with Donald Trump is what helps him personally. And that could be financially. It could be politically. It could be picking up women, whatever it is in his life. That's who he is. So in this case, 
Yes, they're ecstatic about this guy. And would Franklin Graham and Jeffers and this group of people agree to suspend some of our democracy for them to have what they want? I think absolutely. I think we should be aware of that. It's not It's not like they're about democracy. They're about imposing their religious beliefs as our law. The same way in the Middle East. I've been in the Middle East. Exactly the same thing that goes on there. There's not a lot of democracies in the Middle East. They're not true theocracies, but they use religion to control people and to get support. His base isn't growing, but they're, they're certainly rabid, the ones that are on board. And it's going to be, regardless of polls, Tom, we know this, it's going to be a tough election. I think we're going to win, but we have to work really, really hard. Get out everyone we know, yeah, register people. It's going to be vicious. We're talking with Dino Badala, host of the Dino Badala Show, weekdays 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Progress, Channel 127, you know, right here on this, uh, on this spot. Dean, you mentioned uh, twice that you have friends and, and relatives in, in the Middle East. You've been in the Middle East. You've seen this sort of thing. You're sure. far more familiar with this playbook than I am. I, I, you know, I lived in Europe for, in fact, I lived in Germany for a year, so I can tell you anything you want to know about, you know, the history of Nazism. But I, you know, the Middle East, uh, you know, I've been there. Uh, I've spent a fair amount of time there, but I, but, you know, not during conflict. What is the next step? If Trump is following the Saddam Hussein playbook, for example, or the al-Sisi playbook, or, or mm-hmm. first of all, I'm curious which one you think he's most, care, most carefully following, and, and then what is the next step? I don't think there's anyone in particular. He goes with his instincts, which are authoritarian, just like Mubarak before in Egypt or Sisi now, or Erdogan in Turkey, which might be the closest, because that was a democracy, and it's been chipping away little by little Erdogan to make himself more powerful. And people there, at least polls show, and for elections, how he's done pretty well. He's had some setbacks, but he's been able to do this. I think what Donald Trump has done, he's been able to use our legal structure to achieve a lot of his goals, like declaring an emergency to fund a wall that Congress wouldn't fund. I think to me, I, I look at the part of the Constitution that allows Donald Trump to suspend habeas corpus in the time of rebellion, same thing Abraham Lincoln did, which simply would mean he could imprison his political opponents you have no charges. You stay indefinite, like a king throwing people in a dungeon. He literally has that power in our Constitution in the time of rebellion or invasion. The more protest, the more we get closer to that. Maybe he says, I'm going to suspend it and starts arresting his political opponents. It gives Bill Barr some justification. Say it's based on the Constitution, and they hope they get to the Supreme Court and that Chief Justice Roberts, who's now our saving grace, and that's kind of sad, but that's the reality, might side with him. You have to hope he doesn't. But that's what I think you would see. Unleashing the military, threatening the military, and having people like Tom Cotton support it is also part of it. Using the military to suppress peaceful protests. Isn't stealing elections a big part of it? Stealing elections are not even elections. I mean, you have elections in Egypt where the candidate gets 95%. Saddam Hussein gets 95%. They're not real elections. One thing you don't have in the Middle East, a lot of ex-presidents walking around. And there's a reason for that. They come into power and they stay essentially until they're killed or they die in office or if they're in prison. Those are the three scenarios for most Middle Eastern presidents. So I'm not sure that's going to happen here. But the fact there are not a lot of ex-presidents means there's not a lot of peaceful transfers of power. And Donald Trump has joked from day one about staying president for life. China's done it. Mm -hmm. It's a great idea. That's not joking. That's priming. He's priming his base to get ready when he calls on them to support him to suspend the 22nd Amendment, which would not allow another third term if he somehow won in 2020. Uh, and the list goes on. Just the, the election's not fair. It's not. It's fraud. We're going to a dark place, but I think we have to be prepared for it and talk about it. You, me, Tom, everyone else. So no one's, no one's paralyzed in fear when it happens, that we're instead ready yeah. to respond. I'm absolutely with you. Dean Obadala, deanofradio.com, the website, and all day tomorrow on Sirius XM, we will be doing this thing. Dean, thanks so much for being with us today. It's great thanks, talking Tom. to you. Vicki in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Vicki, what's on your mind today? When I watch the protests, I see citizens out there, and I know there's many of us that support them as well, and we're all calling for action not just more rhetoric. And I'm supporting the second attempt to impeach Trump. And I would like you to speak to the history when we were doing that earlier on the first attempt, how that curtailed a lot of his aggression and illicit uh, actions 
and that might put a little salt on his tail while we uh, get the uh, attention of the citizens saying that we are in an active opposition. It did slow him down. And I wonder if putting salt on a bird's tail actually prevents them from flying. I heard that when I was a kid, and it's an old saying. But in any case, yes, uh, he did slow down when he was being impeached. And then when he got, when the Republicans in the Senate refused to convict him. I just, you know, somebody called into, on Wednesday when Congressman Pocan was here, somebody asked him specifically that question. You know, would you guys consider trying to impeach Trump again? And Congressman Pocan was like, I, you know, I just don't think that there's the political will for it. There's not the consensus. There's not really, I think what he was saying is we're not hearing from our constituents. We're not hearing from our voters that that's what they want us to do. I can't speak for him. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it seems to me that now might be a good time to call 202-224-3121, which is the switchboard for Congress and speak to your Democratic members of the House and Democrats in the Senate and, and tell them that uh, impeaching Donald Trump for violating the First Amendment right to peaceably assemble in front of the St. John Church uh, is something that should be done immediately and send it to the Senate and get these guys on record again because he's got six months. And after the election, between November 3rd and January 20th, what is that, two and a half months? where he's going to feel like he can do anything he wants if he loses the election. He's on his way out. And that is the moment in my mind of maximum danger. Although, you know, I mean, look around us right now. We're we're clearly in a crisis. Yeah, he's emboldened by inaction. He absolutely is. And and the Democrats, you know, I, I just, you know, I said this earlier, you know, what would Republicans do right now? If Barack Obama was engaging in this kind of behavior and they'd already failed in impeaching him once, they'd be impeaching him again. I mean, you yeah. know, it's like, they, it's like, and I don't look to Republicans as my role model for all things, but boy, when it comes to political gunfights or knife fights, the GOP, they know how to do it. And they've been doing it for a good long time. And the Democrats keep believing in, in good government and governance and, you know, let's you know, consensus of the people and the will of the people and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's time to, it's frankly impeach time to call. Again, time obviously. to call the Congress. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. There you go. You're welcome. Thank you, Vicki. 202-224-3121 is the number to call your member of Congress. Cassandra in uh, Camas, Washington. Hey, Cassandra, what's on your mind today? Hi. I'm... Hi. <laughs> I just have a comment to make concerning the anti-lynching bill that is being held up at the present moment by we all know who in the Senate. Senator Rand Paul, for anybody who wasn't listening yesterday, yes. Yeah. It isn't a given, and I think we need to wake up to this fact as white people in America, all of us that are, that the reason why it is being held up is that it is an automatic assumption that lynching is only about black people, Hispanic people, people of color. No one expects white people to be lynched. It's just a given. So that means that you are holding up a bill that has to do with protecting people of color because no one expects lynching to even remotely revolve around white people. And these police forces have been given carte blanche to go out and lynch people at this point. And they're not going out and lynching white people. They are lynching people of color. And the sad thing to me about this is that I have a nephew who is on the police force, has been for a few years, and he did the typical route that most of our police, 99% of our police take, which is straight out of the military into the police force, which means you're taking people who have been told to fight for their country in a foreign land or whatever, and in the moment, of course, last 20-odd years, it's in a foreign countries, and not to protect us here on our own soil, but somewhere else, and here's your opponent, and now we bring you home, we don't decompress you, we just send you right back out, and you need an opponent. Who's the opponent? It is the American people now. And more precisely, it is the people who live within America of color that they are now being told, here, vent all your anger, vent all your frustration, your PTSD, vent it on the people that are your fellow Americans. And the sad part to me is that these people are being manipulated. These police, these military are being manipulated 
and used just as much, and they cannot see this. They are being used as much as anyone who is being afflicted in this country. And someday they're going to turn around and realize that someone they've maced, someone they have stunned with the bullets, uh, the rubber bullets, they're going to realize that was a family member, that was a friend. So the people you profess to love, you are now harming just because they don't know them. These these men in Minneapolis who, you know, they didn't even live in the area. They lived outside. So, yes, you have no connection to these people there. But what happens when it is your own people that you know? Well, you are hurting someone's son, someone's mother, someone's brother, someone's grandfather pushed down on it, you know, and he's left there to bleed on the, on the cement. This is disgusting. And we have to wake the police and the military up to the fact that you are harming your own people, whatever the color of their skin. You're harming everyone, including yourself. Absolutely. And you're losing your soul in the process. Cassandra, thank you. Very eloquent. Very eloquent. And let let me just add to that. Number one. In basically every war we've had since the end of World War II, you know, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the various military incursions in Central and South America, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, the Afghan War, the, you know, Libya, you, you name it. We are training our military, particularly the white military who transition into the white police forces around the country. We are training them to kill people who look different from them. And there's a long tradition of this outside the military, inside policing. In the United States, up until the middle of the 1800s, many communities in the United States, arguably most communities in the United States, did not have formal police departments. There would be somebody who was deputized as a sheriff. It was a part-time job. It was sort of like being a member of the volunteer fire department. The whole formal policing thing largely was not happening in what we called police. It was happening in the northern states. It was simply happening as I just described. In the southern states, it was happening as something called the slave patrols. I wrote an entire book about this, The Hidden History of Guns in the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment was passed specifically to protect the slave patrols in Virginia, Georgia, the Carolinas, Alabama. That's why it's there. And our modern-day policing in the United States uniquely grew out of the slave patrols. That's why policing is so different in Canada. We joke about Dudley Do-Right and the Mounties. They're respectful to people. Why policing is so different in Europe. They didn't have the slave patrols. We still do. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one. 
In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Tom Harmon here with you. Kimon Freeman is online with us, program director and host at We Act Radio, our affiliate in Washington, D.C., an activist with Black Lives Matter, D.C. WeActRadio.com is the website. And Guerrilla Artist and uh, BLK Lives Matter are Twitter handles and also at We Act Radio. Kimon, welcome back to the program. I'm wondering, first of all, I believe you were there when Bill Barr ordered the clearing of that area so that Donald Trump could do his photo op. Do I have that right? You have it absolutely right. We were at the exclusive announcement. It was the first media outlet to report that. And um, upon his uh, arrival, surrounded by uh, Secret Service agents, of course, he spoke to all the white shirts, uh, the, the men in charge. And as soon as he uh, left, that's when all hell broke loose. And I uh, unfortunately um, witnessed um, young people being beaten with batons that didn't move fast enough. They started shooting um, uh, rubber bullets. Uh, I was hit with a a TIG-ass canister projectile in uh, in my leg. And uh, they had horses out there, and uh, it was chaos. And and one of my producers, uh, Will Ugart, said that, you know, has this picture of me, you know, claiming that I'm calmly strolling through tear gas. And that was because, you know, I've I've been in Ferguson. I've been in these situations before. But these young people, half my age out there, they was afraid of their lives. They was afraid for their lives. And it was um, pure chaos created on the part of um, police violence. Yeah. You want to describe what it's like to be tear gassed? Well, the first time it is it is terrifying, but the, when you're prepared for it, <clears throat> you got the goggles. You have the um, information that a lot of Palestinians and other activists from around the world and the Chinese uh, activists in Hong Kong share, and how to deal with it is a much more common effect. But you know, uh, for those who don't know, you know, milk and eyes get tear gas out you. You know, put using those construction cones, street cones, to cover the tear gas canister and you can pour water directly on it and it douses out. When you have the information, like anything else, you're better prepared and you can deal with it. But when you don't and you don't have any protective gear, it is probably one of the most burning sensations you can ever imagine in uh, in your eyes. People, uh, I've seen people uh, vomit. Some people uh, have, have collapsed, you know, if you're asthmatic or any, have any type of respiratory illness. And then, of course, you Combine that with the COVID-19, <laughs> which would further exacerbate anyone with conditions. Uh, it's just a recipe for disaster. And I, I want to remind everyone that this was a peaceful protest and it, they was violently attacked. And it's all on camera. Yeah. And we're looking at police riots all over the United States against peaceful protesters, people exercising their First Amendment right to peaceably assemble and, redre- and petition their government for redress of grievance. And um, generally. talking with Kimon Freeman. Yeah, yeah, which is another, you know, essentially protected class, as it were, in the First Amendment, right? Although it does say Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say the president shall not, but I think it's clearly implicit. Your mayor in Washington, D.C., my mayor for seven years when I lived there, Muriel Bowser, has just done something extraordinary. Tell us about 16th Street. What's going on there? Well, first, I don't want to leave out our, our, our council chairman. In D.C., we have 13 council members and a mayor, and uh, the chairman of that council is almost as powerful as the man. He has come out in a statement aggressively uh, denouncing uh, the police violence and in full support of the protesters. I uh, just want to give Chairman Phil Millicent a shout-out uh, for doing so. But Mayor Bowser, what you're referring to, has taken the extraordinary step of painting the 
title of Black Lives Matter on 16th Street. And for those who don't know, 16th Street is the Meridian Line in Washington, D.C. is a diamond-shaped district. And that 16th Street runs directly into the White House. So she has effectively painted Black Lives Matter on the doorsteps of the White House. And and giant letters on the street. (laughs) Yeah, it's like three blocks long. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. And then they're also putting up signs. They've renamed that part of it as Black Lives Matter Plaza. Do I do I get that right? Well, that's news to me. I don't have that information. I haven't been down to the um, the White House today, but I will be there um, shortly. But the Black Lives Matter three blocks long painting on the street, (laughs) full size, Mm -hmm. both lanes is accurate. Yeah, it's truly remarkable. Come on. What's where do we go from here? I mean, uh, with regard to D.C. and with regard to this national movement in general to to both bring about racial justice and also to deal with the violence of policing against uh, black people. Well, you know, we have to look back to go forward, and I would urge your audience to pick up Martin Luther King's last book, and it was, uh, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? There's a lot of answers in that book, and it's given me a lot of solace in going forward. But to pull from his letter from Birmingham Jail, he said that direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. And unfortunately, this week we heard Barack Obama break his silence, but he was careful not to call the protesters thugs this time, but uh, he stopped short of confronting the issue. And the issue is police violence, and he hasn't done anything to address that. I'd like to applaud our former president, Jimmy Carter, who has done a much better job in doing that and raising that issue. But to answer your question directly, you know, we don't even have a national database in this country, a federal database, because the FBI has even testified. Furthermore, I want to make sure people are know that the FBI has reported in 2006 that uh, law enforcement has been infiltrated by white supremacists, quote unquote, and everyone has seemed to ignore that report. But he went on to testify that there's no database for police shootings. He couldn't answer how many people have been shot by police because he doesn't have that data. There needs to be a national database. That's the first thing. And then I got my personal top five. We need to have a legitimate citizen review board with hiring and firing powers. We have a few, but they are paper tigers that don't have that power. We need to acquire a significant percentage. I heard one of your callers say this earlier. uh, Acquire a significant percentage of police that work in the community, live in that community. I don't think it should be defined by race, but you live there. If you live there, then you should work there. And people always want to deny that as that being unconstitutional or not appropriate, but any politician has to live in the area that he represents. The mayor has to live in the city that she represents. Why not the police? And then we need to have an right. automatic expulsion for loss of life of any unarmed person who is innocent of any felonious or wrongdoing, subject to further prosecution. And then we need to have acknowledged that millions of dollars are given out every single year in every single city for police brutality and misconduct, but that money comes out of taxpayers' money. It doesn't come out of the police department's budget, and it truly doesn't come out of the police officer's in question salary. If that happened, you would get a, a change in road police behavior overnight. And finally, we need to have public input into city negotiations for the all-powerful police unions. Yeah, I was hoping you were going to get to that. I mean, it strikes me as bizarre that we have national standards for, you know, there's basically two, two categories of people who literally hold, their li- hold your life in their hands, doctors and cops. And by law, they have the power to do things that might kill you. And doctors, I mean, there are national standards, accreditation standards. They have, they have to have uh, liability insurance. It's called malpractice insurance. You know, if a doctor has a horrible history, they lose their ability to practice. We have nothing like that for police. And a large part of that are these police unions. And I was amazed that this week to learn, I, you know, and I, I thought I should have known this for years, but that a lot of these police unions are not actually even organized as unions under under the you know the the National Labor Relations Act of 1930 whatever it was 35 I think it is um, that you know instead they're uh, quote benevolent associations they're basically protection rackets to to defend bad cops and and uh, and, and buy off politicians I mean they in New York in New York they've shoveled over a million bucks to Cuomo um, what do we what's going on in D.C. with regard to this? And how do we how do we take this on at a national level? We just have a minute to go here. Come on. 
Well, to be honest with you, even with the support of the mayor and, and the chairman of the um, D.C. Council, uh, they're making a clear distinction between uh, the Metropolitan Police Department, our local police department, and the federal um, um, officers who were responsible for the brutality at the White House. But unfortunately, a lot of these bad apples uh, exist in all of the barrels across America, and we do need to have um, a consistent um, uh, engagement in terms of police uh, um um, brutality, and, and we need to reform all police unions so they can all play by the same handbook. And I just want to say that this is not going to go away. Uh, it's, 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 you know, we are uh, emancipating ourselves, and it's not game over, it's game on. And it's just going to get worse because we have 35, 40% of all the, uh, the residents in the city, and I'm sure in other cities across the, uh, America, who are behind in their rent and mortgages, and they can't evict um, 40% of a city. Uh, that would be even more chaotic. So I like to urge uh, cancel rent campaigns before the violence uh, uh, escalates. And then, of course, for all those who can't make it out to the protest, we have been um, organizing at 7 o'clock eight minutes and 46 seconds of musical protest, and people can join in uh, just like the uh, New York City residents uh, applauded their health care workers every day. Um, Drums for Justice is the hashtag. Drums for Justice, 7 p.m., your musical protest will provide a national support for all of the resistance that's going on right here today in our lifetime. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. Eight minutes and 46 uh, seconds of your favorite musical protest song, because we try to remain awake during a great revolution. Yeah, it sounds like a plan. Kimon Freeman, program director and host over at We Act Radio, our affiliate in Washington, D.C., activist of Black Lives Matter, D.C., weactradio.com. And uh, Kimon, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always great talking. Thank you. Yeah, keep up the great work, my friend. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In the Tom Harbin Book Club today, our book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns by Igor Volsky. This is from the preface, Shooting Guns in the Desert Can Surprise You is the title. We don't teach people how to shoot. We teach them how to think. Mike, the second in command of one of the nation's largest firearms training institutes, tells me over an early dinner. We are at a country club 20 miles north of the gun range where I just spent the last two days firing 200 rounds of ammunition and learning how to safely carry and operate a handgun. A tall, distinguished-looking man who bears a slight resemblance to former President George H.W. Bush, Mike is wearing a yellow polo shirt, neat, clean khakis, and a belt with a holstered handgun and two full magazines. As we sit in front of a beautiful Rocky Mountain backdrop, the tops of which will be covered with snow in a matter of months, I take a big swig of coffee and search for a tactful way to ask Mike the question that's been swirling around my brain since my first day of training at the Firearms Institute. I finally blurted out, I still don't understand why you're lying to your clients. A silence falls over our table. As Mike looks away from me, I look directly at him and wait for him to respond. 48 hours earlier, I had boarded a plane to learn how to shoot a handgun from the best instructors in the business. The opportunity arose through my friend Sam, not his real name, who in the course of my writing this book has become my guide to the world of firearm enthusiasts. Sam invited me to travel to the Southwest and experience a two-day firearm training course with people he described as the best instructors in the world. I will take it with you, and then after, you can interview all the trainers, he said. They all hate the NRA. He had arranged for the range to comp me the two-day course and rental equipment, plus complete access to the other students, instructors, and its leadership team. Sam, a white, boyish, fast-talking ex-Marine and hardcore gun enthusiast, had passionately pitched the idea to me by phone months earlier. You'll love it and really get a taste for what it's all about. Meet some great people and I'll do it with you, he said. Fashioning myself as an open-minded and adventurous person, I jumped at the chance. Surround myself with 600 armed Americans and thousands of rounds of ammunition for two full days of gun shooting in the hot desert? Sign me up. What could possibly go wrong? So there I am, a city slicker who hasn't sat behind the wheel of a car in three or four years, driving my fully insured economy rental car literally into a desert at sunrise one Friday morning in October. I'm blasting a local hit station with the windows rolled down, singing at the top of my lungs in an effort to wake myself up enough to handle a handgun. 
Yes, I'm belting out Sia while doing 70 down a dirt road without another car in sight. As I get closer, I turn off the radio, make the right turn, and take a deep, deep breath. Ahead of me, I see a line of cars about 30 deep and a large sign displaying the logo of the Institute. Next to it is a larger placard. Warning, unsafe to enter without authorization. Live fire training area. Risk of severe bodily injury or death. I've arrived. Before I know it, I'm on a 500-acre compound in the middle of the mountains. I drive up to the parking lot, suddenly overcome by the vastness of this place, and pull into a spot. Sam meets me and tells me that more than 600 people will be taking 20 different classes at the Institute that day, most of which involve handguns and rifles. After lunch, classes on automatic machine guns will be available. My eyes grow wide at the idea of even being near a machine gun. I smile at him and look around to see people carrying coolers and equipment, behaving as if they're at an amusement park or some kind of sporting event. This is my first feeling of panic, of being found out as an interloper, or worse, a spy in a foreign world. We move into a line for equipment rentals, and Sam points out the people in the best tactical outfits and reviews their looks. Finally, something I can get into. Sam himself is decked out in a slick black shirt, which accentuates his military build, and inverted cargo pants with pockets that expand into the leg, an outfit suited for concealed carry, he tells me. Everyone around us is wearing a variation of this military-style clothing, and I realize that these are specially clothes designed for recreational firearms shooting. Some even have custom hats with their names embroidered on the front and back as if they're actually serving in the military. These folks are really hardcore. It really has become a lifestyle, Sam says to me. I glance down at my jeans and bright red sneakers and realize I've made a horrible mistake. As if reading my mind, he says, you're just fine, and starts to examine the kit the young attendant has just handed me, making sure I have everything I need. We move forward toward a long row of tables where staffers are inspecting all weapons and ammunition. It's his first time here, Sam says. Magazines, 200 rounds of ammunition, safety goggles, electronic ear protection, holsters, you got it all. The inspector says, mostly for my benefit. I smile and make a mental note that those things that hold the bullets are called magazines, not clips. And, oh, by the way, it's rounds, not bullets. Okay, lift your hands up, the attendant says. Before I know it, he and Sam are putting a belt around my waist and sliding the ammunition holder and gun holster onto it. The inspector confidently drops a Glock 17 into the gun holster on my right side, the firing side, and I'm carrying a firearm for the very first time in my life. As Sam and I start to walk away, I try to decide if I feel any different. Suddenly, the inspector calls out after us. Wait, are you the Sam, he asks. Sam turns around and smiles. I've seen your videos and stuff, the inspector enthusiastically tells him, becoming a starstruck fangirl right before our eyes. The book is Guns Down by Igor Volsky. Welcome back. Ten minutes before the hour, Eric in Seattle. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I'm thinking about protests and how people are expressing themselves at these protests. When this all came down, we had a tantrums, you know, burning and looting. Now, it's six days later, and things have kind of changed here in Seattle, and they have a different form. And the mayor actually came out, spoke to the crowd. They booed her. She met with people later on. That's an ongoing thing. But mm -hmm. I'm thinking back to the history of protests and the forms that they take. What are the effective means? You know, we started out with this outrage, aggressiveness to start out. But six days later, um, you know, the thought just came to mind. There used to be a tradition of flag burning. Uh, and I'm just, do you think that that would help send a message as going on here I think in the it would country. be extremely counterproductive, Eric. Yeah, I think that that would be the kind of thing that people who want things to devolve into chaos would be doing. That would be the kind of thing that would lose you all sympathy from basically the white middle class. And that's exactly what happened in the 60s and 70s. I was there. I remember it well. And it's the thing that yeah. the anarchists and, and frankly, I think in some cases the police did in order to whip people up. So, I, you know, I would be you know, strongly opposed to that. But your question is is well taken. And I think it's got to be a, a large number of people out in the streets, but not just that. Civil disobedience, the disruption of the normal course of business in ways that are nonviolent. That's what gets everybody's attention. Keith in Tampa, Florida. Hey, Keith, what's on your mind? 
Yeah, what I wanted to tell you was I heard you talking about lynching, and I went to a museum in Montgomery, Alabama, called the Legacy mm-hmm. Museum, and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Pretty amazing place. It shows the history of lynching in the United States, and it has a lot of memorabilia and stuff in the museum and photos and what have you as far as the museum goes. And then you take a little shuttle bus over to the uh, to the National Memorial, and it blew me away because what it is is it has all these columns, and all the columns represent all the counties in the United States where lynchings took place. More than 4,400 African-American men, women, and children were hanged, burned, alive, and shot, and drowned, and beaten to death by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. I don't recommend you going there by yourself, because I went there by myself. It was really tough. When I came out of the museum, my chest was tight. I went outside, got some air, and then I went over to the memorial. It will take your breath away. It's, a, it's located in Montgomery, Alabama. The new uh, Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C. has pieces of it that are very similar to that, that are just, that just reduce you to tears, uh, much like Yad Vashem, the one about, you know, the Holocaust museums do. And yeah. uh, these are things that, you know, if we're going to have statues to Ronald Reagan in every county in the United States, which the Reagan Legacy <laughs> Project put together back right. in, in uh, 1991, and they have now succeeded in doing, we should have a museum like you're describing in every county in the United States. Ed in Jackson, Tennessee. Hey, Ed, what's up? Hey, Tom. Hey, do you, do you mind if I read a little quote here from John Adams, and it applies to our problem now with our criminal injustice system and mass incarceration. If it's, if it's less I've than a sentence anybody or two, talk yeah. about it. Listen to this. It is more important that innocence should be protected than it is that guilt be punished. For guilt and crimes are so frequent in this world that all of them cannot be punished. When innocence itself is brought to the bar and condemned, especially to die, the subject will exclaim, It is immaterial to me whether I behave well or ill, for virtue itself is no security. And if such a sentiment as this were to take hold in the mind of the subject, that would be the end of all security, whatever. Now, John Adams Where'd said you get that, that from, 1770. Ed, what's the source is. for that? Do you know what Blackstone's ratio is? No, I don't. I it's, know about Blackstone's law dictionary, but... Okay, well, this is what it means. All presumptive evidence of felony should be admitted cautiously, for the law holds it better that ten guilty persons escape than one innocent party suffer. But, uh, uh, and that's you know, the ratio. Yeah, okay, got it. Yeah, and Benjamin Franklin even took it to, it is better that 100 guilty persons should escape than one innocent suffer. Yeah. And there was a time in this country where that was considered, you know, really, really important stuff. And thank you for that. Thank you very much. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's up? Hey, good afternoon, Tom. Uh, I don't know, you tell me, but I think maybe we all just witnessed the most overt and direct violation of the Establishment Clause with uh, Mr. Trump's little walk on the wild side there. It had shades of Netanyahu shelling Gaza and the burning of the Reichstag. You got Trump clearing the path with military force and weaponry, marches over, flanked by the top law enforcement official. He's got his Himmler there. He's got Martin Borman and all of his political people, and his little blondie press pre-hour lady there is his Goebbels. And he just does nothing but take a stance on a particular sect's land while holding up a very specific book as if to wave it over the congregation. I mean, he didn't even make a a speech about faith in general, where U.S. presidents, you know, will acknowledge all of the various major faiths whenever they're teetering into that territory. He just stood up there, held the book, and declared himself the Messiah. It's as as deep a violation of the Establishment Clause as I've seen in my lifetime. What do you think? I don't disagree with you, Eric. I don't think it's a legal violation of the Establishment Clause, which says that Congress shall establish no religion for the United States of America. But it's a moral violation of it. It's a violation of it in principle. I completely agree. Vic in Stockton, California. Hey, Vic, what's up? I know the left has so few countervailing powers left. This is is my idea. I want your thoughts on Union of Concerned Scientists clock. We need a new one. It should be called the Endangered Democracy Clock. Number two, 
we got to get after FreedomWorks. We, we can use that scorecard against FreedomWorks because we got to tell people, everyone who votes for those Republicans, they're voting against them. And number three, regarding Trump, we got to say, you know what, folks, this is what you get every time you vote Republicans. Yeah, thank you, Vic. I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right in all regards. David in Searcy, Arkansas. Yes, I believe that the protesters, in an attempt to avoid these rioters and fakers and stuff, that they should open up the platforms of the sports stadiums where they could all gather inside those peacefully, not having to be marched. The cost will be cut down. They could use that as a platform to set out and possibly form a article. I, I, I understand your sentiment, David, but, but the point of civil disobedience, and that's really what we're seeing here, is disruption. And, you know, not, not destruction, but disruption. And when society gets disrupted, society tends to pay attention. And if everybody goes to a sports stadium, there's no disruption unless there's a football game going on. Um, but I, I understand your sentiment. And thank you for the call. Democracy is not a spectator sport. It doesn't happen. It doesn't survive if you don't get involved. Tag, you're it. Be good to yourself and those around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.